This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Back in February 2023, as the world was experiencing the first shocks coming from the release of ChatGPT and then ChatGPT4, and then the explosion of customized generative AI tools, Frankfurt International School held a symposium on AI in education. The panelists were mostly FIS students and a few faculty. It was a truly remarkable two-hour deep dive into what students and teachers thought at the time about the implications of this incredible acceleration in artificial intelligence. Subsequently, the ever-curious podcast host that I am, I got in contact with Jessica Rousseau-Schur, one of the educators on the panel. Long story short, working with Jessica, who is a marvelous educator I have come to know, we were able to secure two students from that symposium as today's guests. So let me say that it is a great pleasure and a privilege to introduce two remarkable young people, two amazing learners, two epic critical thinkers, two wonderful young human beings, and future leader change makers, Vama Kotari and Sophia Dietrich. Frankfurt International School is one of the oldest international schools in Europe, founded in 1961 by a group of six expatriate families from major international companies to meet the need for an English-speaking education in the Frankfurt area. Since then, FIS has continued to grow, serving as a center of learning for thousands of students from every part of the globe. Its existence has enhanced the economic strength of the Frankfurt area, and its faculty and staff have set an example for the FIS alumni who now work in a wide variety of professions worldwide. Sophia Dietrich has an international background that includes being born in Denver, Colorado, growing up in France, then growing up again in Germany. A senior at FIS, she has already developed an international mindset and, interestingly, a passion, dare I say, for Japanese culture and its values of harmony, tranquility, purity, and respect. Vama Kotari was born in India, but carries an American passport. She has lived half of her life in Germany and is a junior at FIS. She has also lived in China and briefly in New Jersey. She has traveled extensively to Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and other parts of Europe. With her family, and in part because of her place of birth, she celebrates many Indian festivals and eats Indian food almost daily. She has been learning to cook and bake Indian food from her mom. She is an avid reader and tennis player, and as I learned during the FIS Symposium on AI, well-versed in what's happening in the world. 
What you're about to hear is a gesture of respect on my part, meaning I pulled no punches with my questions, despite the fact I was talking to two students. In the end, it was a marvelous conversation that ranged across a multiplicity of topics, including grades and assessments, purpose versus passion, all things generative AI, the value of a deep sense of self when one is a young learner, and much, much more. As it turned out, one of the topics that came up was also about trust, which I think you're going to find fascinating. As I have done with previous episodes involving more than one guest, I spoke to Vama Kotari first, then after the first break, I spoke to Sophia Dietrich. After the second break, I brought these two awesome changemakers together for some reflections and final thoughts. And now, here is my conversation with Frankfurt International School students and changemakers, Vama Kotari and Sophia Dietrich. Fama and Sophia, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yes, thank you so much. So listeners, what's happening is that Vama and I are going to have a conversation first, and then we'll take a break, our first break, and then Sophia and I will have a conversation second, and then we'll take another break, and then I'll bring the two of them back together again in the final section for some reflections and some additional questions. So Vama, here we go. You appear to be, Vama, the living embodiment of a concept I have talked about to multiple previous educator guests, which is worldliness. By my reckoning, you have lived in and or traveled to China, New Jersey, Africa, Thailand, Oman, Croatia, Europe, and India. Probably there are more. And you live and attend school in Germany, but your passport is American but you have a deep identification with India and its culture where you were born. So I know this might be a wicked hard first question to field Vama, but what is the value of your interactions, your immersions in all these cultures and places over the course of your life so far? Like in what ways have all of these geographic and cultural interactions shaped Vama Kotari and helped develop her into the person she is today. Hi, thank you. I think that having lived and been interacting with many cultures really helped shape me and my connection with my own culture. I think being a kid who's Indian and has lived in areas that aren't in India and for example, I might not have like the full community that my parents had. I think going to other places, connecting with those other cultures has really helped me connect with my culture as well. Over the past three, four years, especially after quarantine, I felt a big change in who I am and how I connect to what is not my passport country, but is my ethnicity. And seeing other countries, seeing other cultures, seeing the beauty of those cultures has really helped me recognize the beauty in my own culture and helping myself connect with that. 
Mm. You know, Vama, when I went back to college to finish my undergrad in the 1990s at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, there was a early multiculturalism movement that was emerging. And I arrived on that campus in 1990, right as it was getting started. And as you can imagine, at University of Iowa, it was a predominantly white Caucasian student body. And I remember that there was a tremendous amount of angst around the fact that the university was taking deliberate steps to develop this thing called multiculturalism. And I wonder what you think about that concept. Like, is it something that we should deliberately go after in education, K through 12, and even in college? Or is it something that we should just allow to happen naturally? What do you think about that? I believe that it should be a combination of both. I believe that finding your own culture, especially as a kid who's grown up in multiple cultures, it's really important to have that understanding on your own and have that connection on your own. However, at the same time, schools, colleges, universities, they should foster an environment in which it's easier or it encourages students to have this connection. For example, here at FIS, we're a very international community where the acceptance of many different cultures across many countries is widely encouraged, accepted, and it's encouraged to be shared with your other students. And I think communities such as that foster mm. an environment in which your own self-awareness and your self-connection can occur. Mm, that's awesome. It sounds like it's something that's very much part of Frankfurt International School's sort of culture. I mean, it's something that has been built, but it's also something that the students all together as a diverse student body have created themselves. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Almost definitely, yes. Awesome. That's terrific. So slight left turn here, Vama. It was with great joy that I noted you are a fan of The Essential Calvin and Hobbes, which is a collection of Bill Watterson's comics about a boy and his tiger. So my extended family here in Hawaii is beyond bonkers about all things Calvin and Hobbes. If, if you pressed me to boil Calvin and Hobbes down to one essential idea, I would have to conjure up the image of Calvin and his tiger sleeping under a tree with not a care in the world, which is, you know, the very antithesis of the busy and complicated and sometimes super stressful lives that you and I both lead. So what is your essential takeaway from the essential Calvin and Hobbes? Like, how does your love of this collection help explain who Vama Kotari is? Well, funnily enough, I actually read it when I was much younger. My parents had one of the collections, and I picked it off the shelf, and I thought it was a regular comic. And it's not until later that I realized that it was actually a comic catered towards like um, a more mature or older group. Mm -hmm. And I think looking back on that now, the simplicity, seeing the simplicity of it, how my six-year-old self enjoyed it, but maybe not necessarily understood everything that was going on. I remember particularly there's a strip in which Calvin and his tiger hops are going down the hill on their little red wagon and he's discussing the future of the world. I think that finding that sort of deeper moments in such simplicity, I think that and reflecting on what I read when I was little has helped me be able to make those same connections and find sort of joy in the simplicity of some things. Sometimes I just 
sit I'm with my friends, especially when I'm with my friends and we're doing something simple, such as just hanging around, laughing, mm. having a good conversation. And I think that has come from, in part from what I've read and the simplicity of Calvin and Hobbes, but the joy that it brought me. Mm. So Vama, how do you, like Calvin and Hobbes, go about finding the balance in your life? And I, I do mean that sort of philosophically. I'm not just talking about you know, the opportunity to play tennis versus work on your, you know, biology project. I'm really talking about like a general sort of spiritual, humanistic kind of balance in life. And I, I, I wonder, because for me, whenever I sit down, you know, I go out to my sister's house and she's got all of the Kelvin and Hobbes books stacked up in her living room. And it's always such a joy to sit down and just dive into them. And I realize how philosophical Calvin and Hobbes really are, and that a lot of the time they are sort of musing, if you will, on what it means to live a crazy but balanced life. And I, I wonder how you go about doing that. What is your approach to that? I think this is definitely something that I, reflecting now, is something that I should work on. Hmm. But what I found recently is having moments of awareness, like I mentioned before, when I'm with my friends, where you just kind of pull back a little bit and realize that there are more simple moments in your life. And I think to find these, when you're doing things that you love, for example, when I'm playing tennis, even though it is overall, like, I know your question was about a more philosophically balanced than a balanced lifestyle, mm -hmm. but within my balanced lifestyle and doing things that I enjoy, I think I find that more philosophical balance in just simple moments of joy. Mm, yeah, me too. Me too. Absolutely. Although it's hard sometimes, right? Because there's so many inputs, you know, they're coming, the inputs are coming from your phone, from your computer, from your teachers, from everybody around you. And sometimes it's very difficult to sort of shut off all those inputs and just to enjoy the moment and be with people, right? I mean, that's the challenge. And I, I love the fact that Calvin and Hobbes was in your list of books that I asked that had been influential in your life. So that's very cool. So Vama, we're going to make another turn here. As you know, I love the symposium FIS organized just a few months ago after the November 2022 release of ChatGPT and then ChatGPT4. And you were one of the moderators of that panel on the intersection of AI and education. And you shared with me some very nuanced thoughts in advance of today on the use of generative AI and education. And one example you cited was Khan Amigo, the AI Khan Academy has developed that serves as a personal assistant and coach for students. So I jumped on pi.ai, which has become my virtual assistant, and asked it to come up with a question for you, Vama, about Khan Amigo. So here is Pi's question, which you get to answer. So what do you think? about the concept of artificially intelligent social learning networks, mentoring networks like Khan Amigo. What are your thoughts about all this?
I think that I agree a lot with what was mentioned in the podcast when Saul Khan talked about his new AI learning tool mm. in which that it fosters personal learning, which helps build interest. I'm a strong believer that to enjoy something you do and to actually want to pursue something in life, you need some sort of dedication and some sort of personal connection to it. Mm. For example, if you're going to want to go into, say, business or medicine, you need to have some sort of connection, some passion to have dedication into what you're studying and ultimately having a good working life or having a good adult life where you are learning. Mm. And I think tools such as Conmigo, which can help and aid students to have this personalized learning, I think that is extremely important. Mm. One of the things mentioned in the podcast that I listened to is that its aim is to Number one, to do this by trying to connect what you're learning with your interests. For example, I think the AI, it records things that you've said that you're interested in. For example, I think they cited football, for example, American soccer, and the AI would actively try to connect this on why, for example, anything in biology is important to being an athlete, like staying nutritionist, for example, or having good nutrition. And I think that this aspect of personal learning, seeking feedback, it can really help foster better education and better connections. Mm -hmm. And so are there examples already in your life where, I mean, you know, what I'm thinking about Vama is that generative AI, though it's been around for such a long time, has really sort of exploded onto the scene, meaning it's suddenly in everybody's consciousness and there are literally hundreds of millions of people who are already using these tools. So I, I wonder, like, for example, with Khan Academy, one of the warning bells that went off when I listened to that Sal Khan talk was that students are now, or learners, are now going to have to figure out what are those moments when I'm going to use something like Khan Academy as a personal assistant, and when do I reach out to an actual human being? And I've been thinking about that lately. I have no answers on this yet, but I'm just wondering about, I guess I'm, I'm trying to tap into your experience so far, Vama, about these kinds of tools and that decision that gets made where you're toggling between human interaction, fellow humans who may be part of a team or part of you know, your network of mentors and coaches and guides and using something like Khan Academy or for me, pi.ai. What, what do you think about that? I think for me personally, I can differentiate the instances in which I would defer to an AI versus a real person. Mm. I'm not sure if this is the same for every single person who would have access to such a tool. But I think that there is a difference between asking, for example, help on, say, an essay versus going to someone that I think would have a better knowledge of me already, for example, a mentor, and knowing my emotions and what I'm trying to articulate, for example. Mm. And I think that while AI is showing the capabilities to be able to do this in the future, get to know you, I still don't, I don't know if this is necessarily the right word, but trust or I wouldn't defer to it as much as I would a real person in an instant where I need it to really understand me and what I'm trying to say. Mm. Maybe it's not because I haven't really tried out the Khan Academy tool. Maybe it's because I haven't done something like that. Mm. But I think me personally, 
I would know when to defer to a real life mentor or one of my peers. Mm, meaning that you would know or understand what trust is all about and that there are certain situations where you trust, for example, an AI assistant versus trusting a human being, right? So it really comes down to the trust part. And what do you think about that in terms of the trust part? Yeah, I think that's also a big idea in AI in general. This is a brand new tool in its collecting data and essentially collecting information about you as a person. And I think to be able to use this sort of data, especially and tool, especially for education, where it is going to have to learn a lot about you, that does mean you have to put trust in a software. And that does mean that you have to allow it to get to know you in order for it to mm. be the best tool that it can be. And that does require trust. Yeah. And even with humans, you have to go through that process of figuring out if they're trustworthy or not, or what they're telling you is trustworthy or not, right? That's just part of living life. That's a life skill, I suppose, that you are able to figure that out. So you and I watched a remarkable debate about artificial intelligence between the authors Yuval Noah Harari and Mustafa Suleiman, who is also an entrepreneur in Great Britain, by the way. So about 35 minutes into this debate, Vama, I thought to myself, yikes, humans are doomed and will not respond in, to AI's advances in time to, to sort of save our humanity. And I, I started wondering what your takeaway is. Like, what is your head saying? What is your heart saying, Vama? After listening to these two big picture thinkers and after you were one of the moderators on the FIS panel on AI and education, I guess what I'm wondering is, are you worried or are you thinking to yourself, like, this is just another tool or is it something in between? Where, where are you at on all this? I think there's two levels to look at this. Hmm. In terms of education, I think the risks um, that are posed are obviously way different than what was discussed within the interview and the debate. And I think that before you sent me that video, I hadn't actually thought of a lot of the things that mm. were brought up. Me and, too. Yeah. And in terms of education, I think right now the biggest risk that I took away from the student panelists is the loss of creativity mm. and the loss of the willingness to do and learn something on your own rather than deferring immediately to an AI. Mm. I think that's the biggest risk in terms of education, losing your own personal creativity, your own thought process in a sense as well. However, putting that into perspective with the overall risks, I do in a sense agree with what you're saying that I had not thought about so many of the things that were mentioned, for example, the risks to democracy mm. and like a bunch of the other points that were brought up. I think that was brought up by Mr. Suleiman was the idea that we need to create, or I think it was Mr. Harari as well, to creating a way for us to monitor it yes. with a new institution. Yeah, I think that idea, along with his own 10-step plan with his company in which they would constantly be reassessing trying to break the AI, like go against and ask it to do things that they don't want it to be able to do in order to assess its weaknesses and creating essentially, like they said, a black box that you would find in a plane. I think that these are solutions and that they are potentially going to help the situation. But I think at the same time, what was said about 
the fact that we are in, I think they called it a sort of new Cold War, in yes. a sense, in yeah. which that we are already arguing amongst ourselves, we have conflict within ourselves, how can we deal with such a proliferating AI in that we can barely manage? How do we, I think an example they brought up is the UN and also the time it takes for them to create solutions and implement these solutions. How can we use a new institution, create it, have it constantly be updating, monitoring, solving issues when AI is proliferating so fast. I think that is a valid concern and a valid worry for us to have. And I think that while AI, yes, it'll have so many benefits on our society, there are so many repercussions that we do have to think of, such as the redistribution of the economy of wealth, what will happen to countries that, for example, as mentioned, have like, for example, textile based, where all of that will be automated, what will happen in the world and balancing that with managing AI to make sure it doesn't do like the things that we're so worried about. Mm. Wow, Vama, you <laughs> you have just crystallized for me why I think I felt like humanity was doomed at that 35-minute mark. Let me explain, and then I'll, I'll have you react to it. This is awesome. Wow. So I think what really worries me, Vama, is that these were two adults having this very adult conversation about AI and all the things that you talked about and the, the development of this hopefully very agile, mobile, quick kind of entity, this body that can kind of monitor and provide guidance for the development of AI as we go forward. But nowhere in that conversation, and I think that's, you've helped me understand what happened in that 35-minute mark, nowhere in that conversation did they ever talk about K through 12, high school, middle school, even elementary school. And I think what really worries me is that this will be some sort of adult conversation that goes forward, while all of those millions of students out there, 95% of them I read yesterday are already using generative AI in one way, shape, or form. They're developing experiences. And I guess my worry is, is that we'll not include them. We'll not include you, Vama. You should be on that panel. Even now, in the 11th grade. And, and I don't know. I wonder what you think about that. <laughs> um, I have to say that I feel like a little bit honored that you said that. So thank you. But I think that in these discussions, it's important to realize that, like many other issues, it has a bunch of different levels. The idea of AI, AI proliferation has so many levels. You have it on the school basis. You have it on the basis of politics, the economy. There's so many things to think about with such an advanced tool, yeah. which is, like I said before, proliferating at such a fast pace that it's not going to be easy to address all the different issues and create all the different solutions that we need to address everything. I think then the only way to do that is to create different levels of response. For example, you can have this global organization that's looking out on a big scale, but we should also have, for example, in education, a smaller, whether it's just within your own school, whether it's in a school district in the US or a state or a whole government, you need to have some sort of way to address it on all the levels that it will be implemented in. 
Yeah, meaning everyone, all the stakeholders have to have an opportunity to provide input on how it's going forward. And that gives me hope. That idea gives me hope. Where I have seen VAMA schools that have created, you know, AI advisory committees, that is hopeful to me. I think that that's a tremendous response. Where they have not included students on those advisory committees, that worries me because you are the users and your experiences really matter at this point. So this is amazing. I just love the fact, you know, when I went back and rewatched that panel discussion that happened back in February that FIS put on, where you were on the left-hand side and you were one of the two moderators, it just gave me such a great feeling thinking about all the things that the students were talking about, even the faculty were talking about, and it gives me hope for the future. So I really appreciate that. So, hey everyone, we have been talking with Vama Kotari, an 11th grade learner and changemaker at Frankfurt International School in Germany. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back. In this section, we'll be talking to a peer and colleague of VAMA's, Sophia Dietrich, a 12th grade student and changemaker on final approach to graduation from Frankfurt International School in Germany. So, Sophia, in advance of today, I wondered to you if you could share with me moments in your life when you feel alive and engaged. And you shared a story about your dad and long car rides and blasting music and sunsets. And I found what you shared almost algebraic, like an equation that explains happiness and engagement. So what is this story of you and your dad on long drives? And in what ways do these moments live in your metaphorical life's backpack that you carry with you each day? Thank you so much for that question. And may I say that was wonderfully also explained and also 
wonderful parallel. So yeah, something I've realized is, you know, throughout the years, you're gathering all these experiences and you kind of start to ground yourselves in certain moments that make you feel alive. And I remember talking with my dad about this the other day and always went out, you know, come from a stressful day back home and something, you know, he would, without even talking, this is a nonverbal conversation. You know, he would be like, you just look at me and I'll be like, I would love to have a car ride. And we would get up, get in the car and we'd just drive. And there's something about, you know, having the music blasting, the windows down and just driving off. And, you know, sometimes it is when, you know, towards like sunset and whatnot. And that sounds very, I guess, fantasy-like, but, you know, it sometimes is not even like that. It's just, you know, it's happening in like real life. Mm -hmm. And those are those real moments that make, you know, the harder situations so much easier. And so, yes, I think that was wonderfully explained also, as you were saying, like the equation for happiness, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I think it's those kind of moments, which, you know, we also draw vitality again and we're also drawing refreshment for the next following weeks so are these car rides like are they just sort of listening to music do you have conversations with each other tell me a more you know i would love to be just an observer on the on the roof of the car just inside the roof of the car you know watching what's going on like what actually happens and i and i ask this sophia because my daughter who just turned 32 or is about to turn 32 in a couple of weeks was just here a couple of weeks ago, and we had a marvelous five days together. And in fact, this is what Emma and I do together, is we jump in the car and we go for these amazing rides, and we listen to music. And I wonder, what are some of the things that actually, what do you listen to, what do you talk about when you're together with your dad? So, yeah, something we do is me and my dad actually have a shared playlist. Mm. And so sometimes we'll just connect the phone to the car and we're just having, whether it be Bruno Mars, whether it be, you know, we have all <laughs> these different artists playing. And it's it's really magical because, you know, here you are in this car with this individual who's seen you grow up throughout the years. And you've also, you know, seen your father grow up throughout the years. And it's those moments which... I guess can say make you feel young again. For me, it's of mm. course differently. But for my dad, he always likes to describe it as, you know, it's, it reminds him of his youth. And so something that does happen within those car rides is, you know, either we just have like personal reflection sessions where it's, you know, we're listening to our own music and we're also kind of just in our own worlds or we're also listening to music together and in our own worlds. Or sometimes something that I do love is actually having, you know, deeper conversations. So those can be on a wide variety of things. But something I've realized is throughout the years, I've started to appreciate, you know, people like and mentors in your life, which you can also don't necessarily have to characterize as mentors, but are always there for you, such as, for example, my father. So when there's like difficult situations, we like to also just talk about it. And there's, it makes those cards make it easier to handle, whether mm. it be the passing scenes, which also remind you that life will move on. Mm. I guess you could also make that like, if we were to analyze this in one of our English classes, but it's something, you know, you're sitting there and you're able to also discuss these things and something, there's a skill and an art form that comes with it because mm. my dad very, you know, subtly tries to also make me reflect on the things. So, cause sometimes, you know, when you have this issue, it's a double-edged sword yeah. and it's sometimes difficult to also reflect on yourself. Yeah. And I think my dad politely also kind of nudges me to reflect on myself and it's just something about it. And it will even sometimes, you know what, we'll even just talk about, you know, how was your day or how is this? How is it in work? How is it in school? And 
I think those are the moments which I personally cherish and so incredibly much. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, now I'm thinking about what Vama and I talked about, about Calvin and Hobbes. In some ways, he's Calvin and you're, you know, his Hobbes. And it is the same for me and my daughter, Emma. I am Calvin and she's my Hobbes. And we just kind of go through life together whenever we can be together. Physically, she lives in California. So I love that. And I just think... Sophia, that it speaks volumes about who you are and who you've become. And, you know, one of the really dominant conversations in education these days is about building relationships. And that's something that you and your dad are doing, like, every time you're together in that way. So that's very, very cool. So slight left turn here. In my intake form, I offered you an opportunity to share an artifact of learning, something not a standardized test or typical five-paragraph essay, your grades, etc. And my goodness gracious, what you offered me sent me into the stratosphere. So you served on a four-person panel organized by Global Online Academy, and I just did an episode with their executive director that focused on rethinking assessment in the age of generative AI. And at the nine-minute mark of this Zoom recording, Sophia, you responded to a question about the banning of these tools in schools. So share with our listeners your thoughts about the core issue, I think as you see it, the way that I heard it from you, which is the attitudes of students and teachers towards generative AI. And also, Sophia, I wonder if you have seen a shift in attitudes since last fall's launch of ChatGPT and all the craziness that followed. Thank you so much for the question. So yes, a little bit of background information. Within this AI panel as well, there was a teacher actually who was commenting to a question about, you know, what are the next steps? And so this teacher, you know, was saying, for example, oh, maybe, you know, the banning of AI, you know, is valid to a certain extent. And I remember thinking about this as well. And I was kind of reflecting in myself. And, you know, then I actually paused because I think something that's so beautiful at least now. And it's, for example, what we're doing right now is we're having these open conversations. And I think without these open conversations, you know, the idea towards having an opinion as a whole and able to move forward as a whole together in comparison to moving as individual silos is so much mm. more supported when we are actually having these conversations. And so this also links to what Vama was previously saying about trust, because, you know, when we are banning AI, what type of message are we saying about trust? Not just to this generation, but to the next generation. Yes. Because of course, the fear for AI will remain there. And that is completely valid and also completely justified. However, something I would also like to raise as a question is, we as a society need to first gather new experiences and new memories in order to build up that trust for those people who are actually supporting the idea of banning AI. Mm. And so something I do think the danger of that is no matter what, AI will become part of our future. You know, we're experiencing with our everyday lives currently as we speak. And I think the banning of that not just prohibits it, but it's also sending the false message of this is something that we shouldn't really be talking about. We shouldn't really be, you know, handling on a surface level. Mm. You might have all these individual students that even though it's banned in school, they might, you know, go home and use it or under like conditions which aren't approved by the school. Mm. Right. And so I think well, when we have these open conversations, firstly, that allows it. And of course, every school is able to function according to like their, you know, mission statement and their beliefs. However, I do think that 
by completely banning it, we're shutting down some very important conversations that could happen, as well as some very important ideas for the future. Because currently, another thing that I'm doing is I'm also working in collaboration with one of the Max Planck teams. And we're actually looking at how students can use AI, Hmm. not just for school-related things, but also for their future. So whether this is linked to a career, whether this is linked to another topic within their lives. And so I think, you know, not just having it be banned, but using it to our facilitation for life and also for our future. Mm. So I'm going to tell you a really quick story, Sophia, and I want to have you react to a thought that comes out of that story. So back in, I think it was 2012, 2013 school year, I was teaching at a pretty large independent school here in Honolulu and doing a lot of ed tech work. And I was team teaching with another teacher in history. And we discovered these two students who were using something called an iPad. (laughs) And we were like, we didn't really know what iPads were at that point, and we were pretty surprised. And so we started investigating, and it turns out that they were already doing some pretty remarkable work on that iPad in terms of, you know, being able to organize their day and take their notes and access information, except that the campus that I worked on at this school, there were zero mobile devices allowed outside of your you know, pocket or backpack or no access to the internet at all for any student or really any teacher. And this was 2012, 2013. So my question has to do with the fact that I feel some regret because out of that moment, my teaching partner and I went to the head of school and convinced him, didn't take much, to make the school go one-to-one with iPads. And I think what happened, Sophia, is that we shocked the system too much. And we did it really fast, and all of a sudden everybody had iPads and everybody had access to the World Wide Web. And I think what I'm wondering is, is this sort of a chicken and the egg situation? Like, do we need to talk about all of this first before we start implementing generative AI or or working with students and teachers or students and teachers working together? Or do we just like, let's open it up and let's see what all the experiences are that people are going to have with it. And if occasionally there's some cheating that happens, you know, that is what it is. And I wonder what you think about it. Sorry, that was kind of a scattered question. No worries. I fully understand it. So I think um, this also, similar to what Rama was also kind of suggesting, this also has two levels to it, right? So you can either approach this from a teacher's point of view or a student's point of view. And I think as a student, it is, of course, you know, we are reliant on those conversations that teachers have and the backbone that our school provides us with the use of AI. However, I do think that, you know, conversations will be able to not just, you know, incorporate one view and then create one backbone for a structure, but also multiple ones. And you know, maybe this is not just applied for one school, but an entire school community, you know, globally mm. to a certain extent. And so I definitely think that conversations primarily should happen as well in order to facilitate a more clear understanding of what, you know, is allowed, what isn't allowed, and then also being able to then directly, you know, aspire new information, also aspire, you know, greater skills like students can learn, you know, surrounding those iPads in your example for yeah. from like the system as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think, however, on the other side, you could also see that, you know, do these conversations take too long? Because sometimes what happens is, you know, we're talking about this, but is this going to be set in practice? You know, is this, and is this going to be set in practice 
within the next few months, within the next few years, like, or are we going to drag this conversation out? Yeah. So I definitely think it's both. And of course, you know, from a student's point of view, whether you use AI within school and for your personal use at home are kind of like two different realms. However, I think, you know, discussions for that will actually help join those realms. So not only are you applying those principles you learned for your school, you know, from your school system to, you know, your version of yourself in school, but also maybe to the version of yourself at home. And so that's why I think both are actually quite essential for this because you do want to stimulate, you know, active practicing from the student. Wow, that's beautiful, Sophia. You know, in my world, reimagining education, we seem to have these endless conversations around project-based learning, problem-based learning, you know, entrepreneurship and education. And the conversations go on and on and on. And in my mind, there's an opportunity cost to that because you're not experiencing it. You're not trying it. You're not learning from failure. You're just talking about it. And I, wow, I just hear that so loud and clear. All right, so follow-up question to this. If I were the CEO and you, Sophia, were applying to work anywhere, and if you presented me with all of your test scores, SAT scores, your grades and GPA, your diploma, all that traditional stuff, and you presented me just your participation in the GOA panel, I would hire you just based on your performance on that panel. All my confidence in hiring you, I found in that panel, Sophia which I would call a growth transcript. And I wonder what you think about that. Am I a foolish CEO or am I on the right track? <laughs> well, firstly, thank you so much because I take that as a compliment as well. And I think I would firstly be very honored if you did hire me. <laughs> but I think in all honesty, I think, you know, you have both. You have your transcript, of course, and then you have your active participation. Something that we do find is, you know, that we can also link this to the current debates and the current discussions we're having. It's the difference between talking about it and showing kind of like the backbone of whether it's your academic resume, whether it's your, you know, what you aspire to do in life versus the actual setting into practice. Mm. And I do think that before I would obviously look at all the amazing other candidates that would be there as well. But I think, you know, being able to show that an individual has had hands-on experience to a certain extent and also shows that that's where sometimes their aspirations are also able to grow from and also develop further, that would be a great starting point as well for consideration of hiring someone as well. Mm. Because for me, for example, I didn't think that this was going to develop as far as it has, you know, and I think that it's those, you know, moments where you see, for example, me at GOA or something, or for other students as well, where you're also able to see that this intrigue to also continue this conversation cannot just develop within those moments, but also be applied to the future. Mm. So I hope that answers your question to a certain extent. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And you know, what I was thinking about as I was watching this conversation and listening to, you know, your responses to some of the questions and the topics that were being covered is it's sort of the reverse of the hiring process. I think most people think, well, 
the way that process works is that applications are submitted, and then some person or a group of people review those applications. What I found myself doing, Sophia, during that conversation was just thinking to myself, I have all I need right there. In other words, I would have actually gone out and tried to get in touch with you to hire you, doesn't matter what company I was at, I would do that. And and I'm not blowing smoke here. I, I do mean it as a compliment, but what I what I'm picking up is that almost right away I had there was a trust in you. Well, actually, this is true for Vama as well, because there were multiple, you know, when she was speaking during the Changemakers conference, I had the same reaction. It was like, I'm ready to hire you. And I don't know, it's not really a question. It's just sort of like, I just want us to break out of the traditional process and recognize that what you did on the GOA panel was an artifact of learning that was quite special, if you know what I mean. You know, I wonder what you think about that. I do, I do. And I think it's also, if I can, you know, elongate this to a larger scale, I think. Yeah. It's those type of moments, not just for me as an individual, but also within our society. It's those, for example, us currently, you know, in our place and time, this conversation that we're having as well, those are going to be fundamental steps to what we were also talking about before, building up that trust and being able to have a society, you know, which is in the future, for example, we'll be looking back and we'll be thinking to ourselves, maybe how funny this situation must have been because this is now our new normal to a certain degree. Yeah. Or maybe we have a different outlook on life. But I think it's these type of things and active engagements or sets of active engagement, which you know support that overall. So Yeah, that's awesome. So Sophia, one more question before we go to our second break. In advance of today, I wondered to you if you had already found a purpose or a passion in your life. So I'm very wary of putting pressure on young people to find a passion too early. But be that as it may, you shared with me a growing interest in biology and DNA manipulation and a nascent early idea of becoming a teacher, which of course made my heart very happy. And you expressed the idea that there is great reward in working with children and that you will not get to see the future they will experience, but you can help shape it with them. So tell us more about your thinking here. It sounds like you are thinking about what it means to educate and coach future generations of good ancestors, and the very purpose of education is on your mind. Is that a fair statement? Is that where your head is at at this point and your heart? Yes, for sure. And I also think, you know, reflecting back on this, we might as individuals, you know, also for the audience listening to this, we might not necessarily be able to, you know, live through the entire future. However, it's ironic because we see the future right in front of us, right? Yeah. I know this might also be indirectly ironic that I'm saying this as a student, but, <laughs> you know, looking down to the next generation, we're seeing the next generation that's going to come. You know, we're seeing these little kids growing up and it's those in type, you know, it's our structure that we pass on, which then they can use to either modify or also facilitate their future growth. I think teaching itself is such a powerful also just tool for getting in touch with our future you know our future might not be set however we can have certain suggestions to how it's going to be based on what we're teaching and what values we are passing on to the mm. next generation mm. and that's why i think it's always so just beautiful to look in the children's faces when you're teaching them something new or when it's like a math problem or something so yeah i fully fully agree 
Mm, that's awesome. I just recently, a few weeks ago, hosted a half-day retreat here on Oahu. Nine students came over from the island of Kauai, and they are all students at Kauai High School, Sophia, and they participate in a club called the Future Teachers of Hawaii Club. And we did a half-day retreat out on the North Shore of Oahu here. I brought together five former podcast guests And we did this sort of half-day program of immersing them in some of the really interesting ideas and education right now. And it's not like we're trying to pressure them to become teachers. We just wanted to kind of open up the conversation. And it sounds to me like your awareness of your own process of learning and of the functions of education have been sort of being formed almost in real time as you get ready to close out your high school career. Is that a fair way of looking at it, that you've actually been thinking and observing and experiencing education and being very aware of it as you go through it? For sure, for sure. I think it's also, you know, you're not only learning it through one subject, but also the multitudes of subjects you have within school, whether it's passing on information from your TOK class to learning about evaluating your life with an English class through like Mm -hmm. a literature analysis. So it's all these different, I guess, facets as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, we have been talking to Sophia Dietrich, a senior high school student on final approach to graduation from Frankfurt International School in Germany. Stay with us. We will be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. In this final section, we will bring Vama and Sophia together for some reflections on the conversation so far and some final questions. So Vama, you have been listening to my conversation with Sophia for the past 20, 25 minutes. What did you hear from her in the previous segment that got you thinking or moved you or inspired you or seems to require comment of some sort? I think that everything Sophia said was wonderfully worded and 
all of it got my gears turning in my head. But I wanted to talk specifically about two things, which is the attitude that people have on AI and her idea of teaching as being a powerful tool. So for one, I agree with Sophia on the idea that banning it and completely shutting it down is not going to work. And I'd like to link it back to the idea that I keep bringing up that AI is moving so fast and all that stopping the conversations in schools, all it's doing for me, what I believe is that it's creating a kind of unrealistic way that you will move into the real world. I respect the school's boundaries, ideas, and what they value. But I also think at the same time, we constantly in schools, we need to think about what's going to happen in our future. When kids go into the real world after they graduate, they're going to have access to this AI, which is going to be in two years time when I graduate or in a year time when Sophia graduates, it's going to be so much more advanced as it is now. And our attitude on it and how we see it and how we are taught to see it by the school and by our teachers or our peers, that will have a great impact on how we use it in our coming years and whether we use it in the right manner. And furthermore, also, I think what you had the idea with your story with iPads, I interpreted it in a slightly different way on how you introduced it way too fast, how you should have had a conversation. And I think that that's the same idea. If you introduce AI just like that, right as soon as you're out, you have a ban, but then suddenly you have access to it. Is it not going to create the same craze, the same thing that happened at this school? And I think that also in terms of conversations, having conversations, yes, it is important to make sure that you don't have this abrupt craze. But at the same time, like Sophia said, you are going to be taking, and as you said as well, there's too much time being taken to talk. And also if you think on a global scale, like we were discussing before, we don't have that time to talk as much. We need to react and we need to do that as fast. And so moving on to Sophia's second point, I think Sophia, you're gonna be an amazing teacher. And that I think one of your questions on the intake form was, what are our fears mm. for the world and in terms of what's going on? And I said that one of the things that I have is I have hope in our future generations and even our current generation because of teachers and educators like Sophia wants to be and that we have in our school as well that will have their ideas, their values passed down into us. And I think that gives me at least a lot of more faith in the world. Bama, first of all, thank you so, so much. And I definitely also want to talk about what you were also saying before and linking to my point where, you know, these conversations that are happening currently as we speak, not just within this podcast episode, but also throughout all other schools and other forms of like social media as well. If we don't react, our kind of stories and our students, which we're trying to teach, are probably also going to make this for themselves. So it's about kind of being able to unite multiple opinions and being able to unite multiple kind of motions and objects of motions together in order to kind of direct this in one specific way rather than having certain people doing certain things which might not align, for example, to a school's, I guess, backbone or what they kind of suggest. So I think it's definitely important, especially for all the listeners currently. Question yourself, you know, what are we doing currently and are these enough and are we moving at a pace which is going to allow us for, you know, the change we want within our world and the change we want with our society before things are going to probably and suggestively also change within individual societies, individual schools as well. That's awesome. Sophia, in the first segment, you heard my conversation with Vama 
What did you hear from her that got you thinking or moved you or inspired you or or begs a comment of some sort? I definitely, definitely think that Vama's point on, you know, the simple moments in life are truly beautiful. And I'm also probably going to elaborate on those a little bit later as well. But something I definitely, definitely saw was how Vama was also talking about multiculturalism as well. And how within the society that we are in and within our school specifically, you know, we have all these different teachers from different places and also all these different friends from all these cool places. And it's about joining those individual, I guess, opinions as well as, you know, cultural backgrounds together. And specifically within our school, we have an event called World Day. And so within that kind of event, we have all these different people representing their countries and stuff. And it's something really beautiful to walk down and see. And you have, you know, for example, the German stand or you have, for example, the Japanese stand and all these different stands that kind of come together. And it's just beautiful to also see. And not only that, but it also links to this conversation having directly, you know, we are people of different, you know, we're coming from different areas and we probably are also going to be, you know, moving into different areas as well. What is that like, you know, seeing education as not just a school-based thing, but a global-based thing? And not just that, also from multiple opinions, which also can disagree, which is also fully okay. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome, Vama. You know, what I really heard was just sort of the dual idea that you have students who are literally multicultural, and then you have a campus culture, a school culture that honors multiculturalism. And then it starts to sound like a very tasty stew, if you will, you know, because you've got this combination of all of the, and does that sound like fair to you, Vama, that that's actually what uh, FIS's school culture is like? Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe FIS. And I think to add on to that is that it also is something that combines that multiculturalism with a bunch of other opportunities that they provide. Our motto is a world of opportunity. So I think that's perfectly pinpointed on what FIS is. Yeah, that's awesome. So look, to the both of you, I love the idea of students as learners carrying toolboxes and educators as guides, coaches, advisors, mentors, and sponsors of the development of a diverse array of tools students collect in their toolboxes. And I want you both to look down on yourselves from way up high, the 10,000 foot level on your combined leadership at Frankfurt International School, your change-making, the internship at Goethe University of AMA, your combined model UN participation, your service on panels about AI, the books you two have read like My Brilliant Friend and A Wrinkle in Time, the project teams you have worked on focused on biology and bacteria and glaciers and so much more. So what tools are now in your toolbox And which of these tools are you most confident using here in September of 2023? Like what makes you a great hire for any company looking to build its team and move forward? Sophia, why don't you go first? I would love that. Thank you so much. So I think something as well is, for example, as we're speaking currently, you know, something I've realized is I kind of build drive through certain events that I also feel passionate about. So for example, this 
kind of debate and also discussion we're having as we're speaking, you know, being able to also represent the student body within this discussion. And also, like you were saying previously, not having that falling out and not making this only primarily discussion amongst teachers when this is also directly affecting the student body. And so I think in regards to AI, I'm proudly able to say that I'm able to continue to support the student voices in this discussion, mm. not just now, but also in the future when I might be also fortunate enough to also move into college and so on and so forth. So I definitely think that's going to be one of them. Meaning that you feel more and more confident in your voice, which is in the toolbox. You have developed the skills of using your voice to represent what other people think, and you feel confident about being able to do that. Is that is that a fair way of looking at it? Yes, for sure. I definitely think I'm able to illuminate certain voices that there are within society now. And, you know, what I'm hearing them within my friends' opinions and within other students' opinions, just being able to illuminate them to a larger kind of conversation, which is applicable to them and also the outcomes are applicable to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I When I listened to the GOA panel, it was quite clear to me that you were speaking not just for yourself, but for many people. And I love that. That's just a tremendous skill it's what would make you a great hire for any company or project or, or NGO or anything. And that's just terrific. So Vama, what tools are in your toolbox and which of these tools are you most confident in in this particular moment? I think that some of the tools in my toolbox align a lot with what Sophia said. I think I touched on this earlier, the idea of dedication and passion. And for example, the Changemaker Conference that I participated in, one of the things that I learned is that creating change, having an impact, it needs to be in something that you are interested in and something that you feel strongly about. And I think one of the tools that was brought to me from that conference is finding those sorts of things. Mm. So for example, here, the future of education, the future of AI, that is something that I have discovered to be something I do enjoy talking about and I do enjoy sharing my opinion on, which is why I'm here. And I think that is one of the things that I have been taught throughout the past few years. I love that, Vama. You know, as I was watching all of the videos related to the Changemaker Conference, both 2022 and 2023, and by the way, the 22 one, whoof, boy, you were you all were swimming through the problems of COVID, right, as you were trying to get your speakers and trying to line up the conference and all of that. And what a tremendous exercise and perseverance there that as I watched all of these things, it was very clear to me that what you just said is true. There's a lot of truth in it. And I could also see that one of the skills that you were developing just by watching what was going on is the skill of collaboration. And by the way, I love the idea that determination, being very determined, is a skill. <laughs> it's not just a noun. It's actually a skill. So that's that's fantastic, Vama. So, Sophia, because you are a graduating senior with only a few months left to go in your high school career, I'm going to have the final question just go to you. So you relayed to me a wonderful story about your grandma and her mobile phone, which she used almost obsessively to take photos of what you called, quote, mundane things. And it turns out your grandma, your oma, was tapping into a beautifully simple but sophisticated idea about time and memory. So what is that story of your Oma and her phone? And what was the wisdom she imported to you or imparted to you through her actions and words? And also, Sophia, as the genie in the bottle, I grant you one wish, which is to have the superpower of time travel, which I think is related to your story about your Oma. 
That is truly a marvelous question. So thank you so much. I think something for a little bit of background for the audience now listening in. So my grandmother, she's German and something she's definitely done is kind of helped me integrate myself in my German, you know, heritage as well. And so something she loves to do, which we'll also be talking about later as to why I think this is kind of ironic, is she loves to take pictures of, I quote, the most random things, <laughs> which my uncle likes to also say. And whether this be the random flower pot on the table or the photo of me setting up the you know dinner table, which is a following morbid image of me, you know, with this very exaggerated facial expression, which is currently circulating within all of our family group chats as we speak. <laughs> and I think something, you know, along those lines is I remember when I first saw this photo, you know, me and her kind of sitting down on the couch and she was showing me her camera roll. And really there were the most random objects. I remember commenting on she had, what was it? She had this lamp. And she, I remember the reason why she took a picture of it was because she liked the detailing. Like there was like this little flower detailing, which she loved. And so we were going through her camera roll. And, you know, there was truly a mix of both happy as well as sad. And there's all these different emotions within that camera roll, which also made me just, you know, stop and wonder. And I was, when I remember asking her about it, like, why do you have this picture of this lamp in your camera roll? She was, and I quote this in German, I will translate afterwards, is weil wir so jung in diesen Momenten nicht wiederkommen werden. And so if I translate that into English, it's something along the lines of, because we're never going to be this young in those moments. And so I was kind of reflecting that on, for example, the image when I was, you know, setting up that dinner table, and that was two years ago. And, you know, at first glance, of course, that's me, and I recognize myself, but to her, it's the time difference between then versus now, you know, it's about all the time that has passed and how beautiful it is to look back on those moments. And we truly won't come together. Like when you're with an individual, for example, you know, this young ever again, because time is going to move on. And I think that's the beauty that she kind of taught me that, you know, you move along with it. And sometimes the value we don't see in the beginning, we see in the future. And I think that's something truly like beautiful, which also links to, you know, it's the little things in life, whether it be that random, you know, lamp or whether she also gets a smile from seeing me set up that dinner table, mm. whatever that may be. I think it's those beautiful little things, which also just are beautiful. And also when we apply this, for example, for AI, sometimes we're not going to be able to see the amount of progress we've also made until we've reached, you know, point of time further along within this kind of journey and looking back from the point within future back onto the present day. And so I think definitely, you know, linking those two together, it's about the little things, whether those are conversations with your friends or so on and so forth, which also make this just a fun journey to be on and also a journey which we should, you know, enjoy and be able to see as valuable that we're able to even have these conversations in the first place. Mm. If we reflect back to all the years ago where we didn't even know where we were going to have like heating properties besides like fires and stuff. So yeah, I definitely think she taught me, you know, how to really seek the beauty in the little things. So mm. yes, thank you so much for that question. That was wonderful. Absolutely. I think that that couldn't be a more perfect way to end an episode, maybe the most perfect way to end any of the episodes, the more than 100 episodes that I've done of this show so far. So thank you, Sophia, for that. So Vama and Sophia, thank you for being on the show today. You two rock. And you have given me hope for the world. What school could be salutes you and wishes you both the best as you prepare to move into the next chapter of your remarkable journeys. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with leading-edge, innovative, and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org and follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Finally, listeners, One of the most important things we can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Thank you so much for listening.